Well, if you have your Bibles open, please, to Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 10 this evening as we continue in our series through this little epistle to Titus, Paul's co-worker. And as you'll recall, perhaps if you've been with us in previous weeks, the big idea that we see again and again through Titus is that God's grace revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ trains us, it teaches us to live godly lives for God's glory. Grace trains us for godly living. That is the drumbeat that continues chapter by chapter through this epistle. And tonight we come to chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10 in particular, and we hear a lot of teaching about what godly living looks like. This is a passage that is chock full of instruction for us, for every single person in this room, telling us what it is that we need to know, who it is that we need to be, who it is that we need to be becoming by grace so that we can live godly lives this evening. And because it is so full of instruction of the kind of life that we should be living, we can't lose sight of the frame in which these verses sit. We can't lose sight of the fact that a few weeks ago, as we looked at the very beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we focused in on the hope of eternal life, that it's the eternal life that's been revealed by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us any hope. And I'll just say this right at the beginning. If you are sitting here this evening and you are not one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not know that hope that gives you eternal life welling up within you, giving you a desire to live a godly life, then much of what this text has to say to you may not be attractive. And even if it's attractive to you, you cannot live this kind of life apart from the hope of eternal life. So I just want to to mention that as we begin this evening, because we're going to come back at the end to see where this goes next week. From from chapter 2, verse 11 onwards, that it's the grace that has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the ground, it's the foundation, it's the power source for the kind of living that we are being taught and instructed in this evening. And that's the kind of grace that you must have if you are going to even attempt to live the kind of godly life held out before you in these verses. We'll return to that briefly at the end this evening. So this evening, we are looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and we're thinking about what a healthy Christian life looks like and how healthy Christians adorn the gospel. Healthy Christians who are growing in godliness adorn, they beautify the gospel. That's what this text is all about. Maybe you are one like me who comes in from the north, or maybe if not, you've, you've happened to walk up, up to the circle here at the Museum of London, or even beyond up to the Barbican, and you've seen the Virgin Active Health Clubs. Have you seen those just up the road here? It's the kind of thing that every time I look at it, I feel a little bit guilty because I'm so poor at an exercise regime. But you can see that they advertise themselves with these, with images, either posters or the video that's playing behind the window up at the Barbican. And do you see the kinds of images they use? People swimming, you know, swimming with their, their swim caps on, muscled torsos parting the water, people hanging from these contraptions doing some kind of upside down yoga sometimes, people lifting weights and sweating and getting healthy. Why do they advertise 
in that way? Isn't it because they want you to see that image and be attracted to what's inside the building? That if you come in, if you join, if you become a member, you too can be healthier. You can be fit. You can have a healthier and happier kind of life if you just join the Virgin Active Health Club. It's an advertisement, isn't it? Well, in some ways, in some ways, that's the kind of thing we see here in our text this evening. That the advertisement for the gospel, for what it means to be in Christ's church and to have been transformed by the gospel of grace, is you and me, you and me as we are growing and becoming more and more healthy and mature as Christian believers, living godly lives. That's what this text holds out to us this evening. Why healthy? Why am I talking about healthy lives? Well, have a look at the text with me. You might remember this if you were here two weeks ago, that back in chapter 1, verse 9, we read about elders, ministers in the church, presbyters, and that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And you might remember that word for sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. So every time you see sound in this little letter, you can think healthy. And we see it cropping up quite a bit in chapter 2, don't we? Have a look at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, a reminder, healthy doctrine. In verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, healthy sound in the faith. Cast your eyes down to verse 8 for a moment. And again, we see sound or healthy speech that is supposed to be a model uh, for those who are teaching and leading in the churches. Healthy doctrine, healthy speech, healthy living, so that by the time we get down to verse 10, what's all of this healthy, growing, godly living supposed to do? What's supposed to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Healthy Christian living adorns the gospel. And we're not talking, of course, about the kind of health that Virgin Active advertises. We're not talking about the kind of health that shows it with your physique or shows it with your stamina as you can run more miles. It's the kind of spiritual health that we're talking about here, a health of godliness, of a heart that grows in its love for the Lord Jesus, in a life that grows in righteousness and holiness and purity. That's the kind of health that we're talking about in our passage, a spiritual health and a spiritual godly distinctiveness that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. And you've got to recall the context at this point as well. Where is Titus? Where is Paul sending this letter to? He's sending it to that little island of Crete. And what did we learn about Crete in chapter 1? Crete is known as an ungodly place. Even by the pagans in the ancient world, even by worldly standards, Crete had a bad reputation. In fact, to Cretanize the verb was was a bad slur that you could use to talk about the way that someone was lazy, someone was a liar, and someone was generally just filthy in the way that they lived and spoke and conducted themselves. That's the kind of Cretan culture into which this letter is being sent. That's the kind of place where Titus 
has been left by Paul, chapter 1, verse 5 and following, to do what? To appoint elders in every town, to build up. This is a church planting, a missional context in a pagan island full of cities, full of people who are unbelievers and need to hear the gospel. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's not so different, is it, when we start to think about our context here in London. Yes, we are blessed not to be a church plant. We are a growing and a living and a thriving in many ways church. We're established here in the center of London. And yet the city around us, the city around us is very Cretan in the way it conducts itself. And so we are in a very similar kind of context to Titus And we have the same need just as Titus and those elders and those church members in those small churches in Crete had to live and grow in godly, healthy ways so that the gospel can spread in London. We heard this morning about what a vision, what a dream it would be, what a wonderful prayer to be praying that LCPC could be planting churches elsewhere in London in the coming years, that we could be growing, that we could fill this space with people who are listening to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified, are being saved from their sins. That's the kind of prayer that Paul had for Titus. And it's the kind of thing that in chapter 2, he says, depends not just on proclamation of the gospel, but also the transformation that the gospel works in the lives of the people in this church. That unless we are growing in godly lives, growing and maturing spiritually, it is going to be very difficult for someone who walks in those doors to believe in the credibility of the Christian gospel that we proclaim. If we share the gospel with them and they come and join us and then they see our lives looking no different from the culture around us, there is a credibility gap that opens up at that point that makes it very hard for them to trust what we're saying to them. And that's what's going on here in chapter 2. Why does Paul urge Titus to teach what accords with healthy doctrine to all kinds of different people because he wants everyone in the church to be growing in godliness. Why? Because he wants the gospel to be going out and having more and more success. But that's not even the final reason, really. The final reason, the ultimate reason, is that Paul wants desperately for God, the Savior, to be glorified. And that's where we end up with the adornment of the gospel in verse 10. We'll, we will return to that thought in just a moment. But that is, that, brothers and sisters, is the flow of thought in this passage. And we need to keep that in mind as we now turn to some of the details of the text. As I mentioned, this is a text that holds out something for each and every person in this room, young or old, male or female, whoever you are, there is something here for you tonight. It's a bit like, again, as I ride into church on the tube sometimes, and you look at those advertisements, you know, across the way from you as you're sitting there, at least on the Piccadilly line, uh, you've got well-man and well-woman vitamins that are advertised. You, have you seen those? And, and there's not just one kind, right? So there's well-man for, for those 50-plus, and there's well-man for the young man, and there's well-woman. For, they've got a different kind of vitamin for every single type of... That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Do you see it? He starts in verse 2, older men. In verse 3, to older women. Verse 4, to young women. Verse 6, the younger men. 
And he even gets more specific than that because he's going to start in verse 1 and continue in verses 7 and 8, speaking to ministers and elders in the church. And then he finishes in verse 9, speaking to all who are, in his context, slaves, that is, those under the authority working for someone else. In our context, that means pretty much all of us who are employed by somebody else and who are not our own masters. There's something here for each and every one of us. And it all relates to godly, healthy living that would adorn the gospel. So let's see in each case what God has for us. And as we do so, can I urge you, as Calvin preached this text, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I've been reading Calvin's sermons through Titus uh, to, to stir me up and to get me excited about this text and to think, how can I apply it to myself? And one of the things Calvin says as he preaches through this chapter is that we are so prone, each and every one of us, to hear the specifics of a text like this, because it gets very specific, and to think, oh, how that applies to everyone else around me, and for it to be deflected from us and not to find a home. And Calvin says, as you listen to this text, pray. Pray that the Lord would apply it to you. Pray, he says, that God would make his way into your heart, take hold of you, and shake you, and inspire you to do good, to grow and be healthy for his glory. So that's what we'll do this evening as we work through, very briefly, four different specific applications. First of all, we're going to start where verse 1 begins. And this is to pastors and elders. And so as I look around, there are a few of us in this room that I'm preaching this to. But by extension, much of what Paul says to Titus here is true for all of us in the church, especially as we seek to teach. So perhaps Sunday school teachers or others who are meeting to teach from the scriptures, this applies to you as well. So don't turn your ears off, even as I speak to Andy, to myself, to others, or charge as office bearers to verse 1. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So succinct. And yet what a charge. That teaching healthy doctrine, gospel-centered, God-revealed, biblical, scriptural doctrine is at the heart of what church leaders must be doing. And so... It follows, doesn't it, that for elders, for ministers in the church, they've got to devote themselves. We must devote ourselves to it. We've got to know it. We've got to study it. We've got to pray that it would seep into our hearts. We've got to draw on that in conversation. Yes, it's lovely to hear about people's lives and to talk about how work's going. But it's also something that you should expect from us, that we should ask you, that we should teach you, that we should apply God's healthy doctrine revealed in his word to your lives, that we should be talking about these things in conversation when we come to visit you or when we grab you over coffee and ask how things are going, that we should never shy away from that, that we should never hold back if God's word teaches a healthy, sound doctrine that is uncomfortable to apply to the lives of those in the church. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And Paul continues to address Titus and elders, leaders specifically, as we look down at verses 7 and 8, doesn't he? Because it's not just teaching. Because it's very easy to teach the right thing sometimes. Any of us who are teachers, 
parents who have ever taught a class know it's very easy to open up the Bible and to explain what it means and to tell others that's what should be happening. But look what verse 7 says. Show yourself, Paul says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model. A type is the word that he uses there. A little, a little model, a little replica that can be imitated, that serves as a prototype, that's a blueprint for others to look at and to imitate. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity. It's not just something we teach. It's got to be lived out as well. Life and doctrine joined up together. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? Look at that little purpose clause at the end of verse 8. Why must especially church leaders, but any of us who are engaged in teaching, why must we live with integrity and live according to the sound, healthy doctrine in this book? So that, verse 8 says, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say to us. When a teacher teaches the right thing and then turns away and falls down in his life, there is nothing more damaging to the health of the church. There's nothing that stains and besmirches the doctrine of God our Savior more. And so... This evening, we have to hear this, that the first call from Paul to Titus and therefore to those of us who are called to teach is to join up our life in doctrine, to teach with integrity. And we have to also apply this then by asking you to continue to pray for Andy, for those of us who are elders, for those who teach the children in this congregation, for those who are teaching Bible studies, home group studies that meet through the week homes. Pray that this would be the case. Teach what accords with sound doctrine and live with integrity, not with hypocrisy. That's the first application, the first instruction. The second instruction in this text comes in chapter 2, to older men. Well, how do you know if you're supposed to be listening up? Are you an older man this evening? It's a little bit hard to say. Does that mean if you've got a bit of gray hair starting to show? Does that mean if you're over 40, over 50? Well, we might all like to think someone else is older. Probably in Titus's context, this was someone who was mid, mid to late 40s or older, an older man, the term that's used there. But I think by extension, we apply that to those of us who are not just getting on in years, maybe in our 40s or, or above, but also those who are older in the faith, that is, more mature in the faith. And what are we instructed to do? Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith. There's a list here that could go on and on, and we know in other places Paul does go on, but he chooses his terms carefully. And if we summarized them, if we had to summarize them, what would we say? We might say he's talking about growing in spiritual maturity, spiritually mature. If you saw a child who was growing year by year but not gaining in height or not putting on weight, not growing in the child's ability to run and do all of the things that normal coordination involves, surely you would be worried, wouldn't you? If you, if you saw that child losing her appetite or his appetite and wasting away to nothing, surely you'd say, there's something wrong. We've got to go to the doctor to get, to get this checked out. How much more is that the case 
for those older men amongst us or those older in the faith amongst us that we should be continuing to grow and that if we are not growing, there's something wrong. If we are resting, if we are coasting, having once trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are not continuing to study God's word, to grow in prayer and repentance, to grow in our desire to serve, to grow in our sober-mindedness, our self-control, our love, our steadfastness, then there's something wrong with us. We are not healthy spiritually. Let's just look at those last terms very briefly for a moment that we see there at the end of verse 2. In faith, in love, and in steadfastness. What does it look like if you are one of these older men here this evening? Well, it means that you ought to be growing week by week, month by month, in your knowledge and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That you love the Lord Jesus more this year than you did last year. Now, that's a hard thing to measure, isn't it? But is that something that you want? There's the first kind of litmus test. Is that something that you desperately desire to grow in the depth of your love and affection for the one who has saved you from your sins? Well, if not, then that's a sign that you're not growing as a healthy, older man in the faith. Growing in love, in your love for the Lord, but also in love for one another, in your love for the people of this congregation, in your affection for people here, wanting to know how they're getting on spiritually, wanting to know how you might serve them, how you might serve the church so that it could grow. Growing in your love as well for the lost around you, for those who have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. How is your zeal for evangelism? Is that something that is growing for you year by year as you grow physically and grow older and grow grayer? Do you grow in your burning desire for people to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? And I have to say, that's a, this is a convicting thought, isn't it, for one who might just count himself amongst the older men here this evening. It's a convicting thought. Is that true of us, that we're growing in these ways? And we also see here self-control. And this joins us from older men to younger men, doesn't it? Because if you noticed, as we read through this passage, self-control appears in verse 2, in verse 5 for younger women, in verse 6 for younger men. Self-control is a thread that runs right through what it means to be growing and healthy as a Christian, to have self-control. And so... Whatever category you fall in this evening, I want us to think for just a moment about what that might look like. We know from the instruction to older women here that self-control relates to alcohol. It did so in the first century, just as it does now. If you are someone who is not self-controlled in your enjoyment of a glass of wine or a drink at the end of the day, but that that's something that controls you, then that is not according to sound, healthy doctrine and godliness. No matter if you are an older man, younger man, older woman, younger woman, self-control in that area looks like coming to the Lord in repentance and asking for the control from his Holy Spirit to resist the temptation to overdo that. But it goes on in our passage and in the whole letter. Self-control relates to temptation generally. And we can easily, 
easily tease this out into different areas of our lives. Just think for a moment of those areas of your life where you are less disciplined than you know you ought to be. I'm not talking about discipline in the way the world defines it, but disciplined in holiness and in godliness. Surely prayer, surely prayer is an area for us to desire the Lord's help in becoming more self-controlled. And what does that need? Well, for many of us, that might need self-control in our habits of going to bed at night. Am I getting this specific? Yes, I am getting this specific. Because this is what we're being instructed to do in this text. To grow in self-control. And so what would that look like for you if you got better sleep earlier so that you were able to rise earlier, more alert, ready to pray, ready to be on your knees, ready to open God's word and begin the day in a way that dedicates yourself and what lies ahead to the Lord and his care. What would that look like? What would it look like to become more self-controlled in the area of your media consumption? Especially as this relates to older and younger men, what are you gazing at on your devices? What is it that we would see if we went to that cache, that memory of the sites that have been visited as you have trawled the internet? Or what would it be that we have, that we would see if we went behind the secret browsing that you think you've set up as a wall? What would that look like? Are you being self-controlled in the area of what you let yourself look at? and long for and desire. Is that according to healthy doctrine? These are convicting areas for older men, for younger men. And this is where the text of God's word takes us this evening. And if that's you, if you are one who knows that you have fallen down in these areas, even perhaps in the, fa- in the past week, then you need to know that the hope of eternal life held out in chapter 1 and the grace that has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 2 is what can drive you to your knees in repentance to find again the grace that you need that you could begin growing in these areas of godliness. Well, what about the women? The the women get lots of airtime here as well, don't they? Verses 3 to 5, join up the older women and the younger women. This is no accident that older men and younger men are joined up with self-control and the idea of an example to imitate. Older women and younger women similarly are joined together. Not only are older women likewise to be, as the older men, reverent in behavior, not slanders, slaves to much wine, verse 3, but they have a, a duty at the end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4, a duty to teach what is good. That is, it's not just some older women in the church who have the luxury of being teachers. This text calls all older women to engage in teaching what is good, and so to train the young women by their teaching and by their example. This text is full of examples of older men and women in the faith taking younger men and women under their wings to disciple them, to open their lives to them, so that those younger Christians can learn what it means to live a godly life. And so here is the very simple application this evening. Yes, we could go into lots of specifics about the first century and about how many of the women, as you can tell from these verses, would have been married and married at a very young age. And so there's there's talk of living as wives and even working in the home. But by extension into our context, 
What we want to do is not limit it to that. Because we are told that older women are to train younger women. And it goes beyond those who are married or may even be married in the near future. It goes beyond that. And we're told that older women have a role in training younger women in godliness. How does that happen? What happens when older women are intentional about spending time with those who are younger. It happens when we go beyond simple conversations over Bible studies or coffee or gatherings, and we pay attention to those who are newer among us, newer in the faith, younger, newer arrivals in our congregation, who need someone to ask them, how can I pray for you? Would you like to open up the Bible and read together in a way that I can share with you the ways that God has been so gracious and faithful to me over many years? That's what it takes. It takes that kind of intentionality so that we have growing and healthy relationships in the church where younger believers, younger women, can be learning from those who are older, shared lives, time spent together, prayer together, opening up the Bible together, instructing one another. There's a very interesting thing that Paul says here in verse 4. And so to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. What Paul is saying here, and one of the terms which is a very rare verb that he uses, is that there is something in the culture which is attracting younger women in particular, in this instance, away from what it looks like to be a godly Christian woman. And the older women in the congregation are meant not only to teach by example, but to call those younger women back from what is alluring them in the culture around them. And to call them, uh, we could really translate it quite bluntly, to call them back to their senses when they see that those younger women are being tempted by what the world holds out and offers them. So older women here in the congregation tonight, can I ask you, are you doing that? Are you doing that for your daughters? Are you doing that for other young women in the church? Is there some one person that you could even begin this evening prayerfully to consider that you might approach and ask, can I, can, can I do this with you and for you? That would be one way we might apply the instructions in this text to ourselves this evening. So we notice that this is all in the church. It's all in relationship. It's, it's, it's church as family, which runs right through these pastoral letters of Timothy and Titus. That older women are not just older women once you're believers in Christ together in the church. They are older sisters in the faith, taking younger sisters underneath their wing. That older men are fathers and brothers in the faith, taking younger men under their wings. Well, we need to close, and so we'll close where Paul does in verse 9, with slaves, or as I've suggested to you, in our context, this is employees, those of us who have line managers, who have bosses in authority over us. What are we meant to do in those working contexts? We're to be submissive to our masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. How's your relationship with your boss going? Is, is, that a, is that an easy, happy, joyful kind of relationship? Or is it difficult? 
Is it difficult? And you might say, well, it's difficult because she's difficult or he's difficult. Well, that's not what I'm asking about just this evening, because what we're told is, no matter what that boss is like, we're to be submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative. We're to show honor and to show respect. We are to give our best work, not grudgingly. We're not to grumble, either in our hearts or behind their backs, as we conduct ourselves as Christians, as those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed for godly living. We're to to show that in our relationships, even to our superiors at work. And we're to give our best. We're not to pilfer. That's not a word that I tend to use week to week. What's pilfering? Well, pilfering is the kind of thing we saw in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira secretly keep something back that ought to be given to the young church in Jerusalem. It's a kind of secretive, dishonest keeping back of time, of resources, of effort, of not giving our best. Our best time, our best work, showing up on time, not leaving too early every day, not giving half-hearted work and effort, not borrowing things from the office and using them at home, not submitting expense claims that really shouldn't be submitted as such. Paul says, absolutely not. We're to show godliness and good faith in our conduct at work. Why? So that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Healthy Christians adorn the gospel. Healthy Christian lives Adorn the gospel of God, our Savior. And why is that? It's because we have been transformed by the gospel of grace. And if we've truly been transformed, we need to be growing in these healthy, godly ways. Why? Because it adds to the attractiveness of the gospel. It, it, it's an attractive thing for people as they look in on our lives to say, I, I see something that is very different in you something that's countercultural, something that I can't explain. It's not just that you're a good person. Maybe, maybe that's what they think, but why are you a good... It opens up conversations and opportunities to say, why don't you come along? Why don't you come along with me to church and, and hear why it is that I am able to live in this way? Because it's nothing that I've done. It's down to the grace that's been shown to me in the Lord Jesus. We adorn the gospel with our godly, growing, healthy lives. But ultimately, it's because we want to glorify God our Savior. The same term that Paul uses in verse 10 for adorning the doctrine of God our Savior shows up at a variety of places in the New Testament, but it shows up at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21. And there we're told that the people of God appear as a bride, the new Jerusalem, adorned as a bride. Some of you will have watched that royal wedding a few weeks ago. Maybe most of you. What does a bride look like? A bride is shining in white, sometimes adorned with jewels, with flowers. Why? Because she wants to look beautiful for her husband. Adorned to be beautiful for her husband. That's what Paul is urging us to do this evening, to live these kind of godly lives, ultimately out of love and thanksgiving for our Savior, God our Savior, who has saved us from our sins, who has given himself for us, as we see at the end of this chapter. Ultimately, we grow in godliness 
to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior and to give him glory, the glory that he's due as a God of grace. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that in it we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we know that many of these instructions in this text cut us to the heart. We stand before you admitting that we are unhealthy in so many ways. And we pray, Lord, now that you would humble us by your spirit under these instructions, that you would convict us of those areas in our own lives in which we desperately need to grow. And we pray, Lord, further that you would supply for us the grace that is needed to teach us, to train us, to strengthen us, to support us, to uphold us, dress on day by day as we seek to grow in godliness. Lord, would you make this congregation a congregation that is such a growing and healthy group of people, saved by grace, that we shine, we shine with the transforming light and glory of the godliness that comes from the gospel of grace. Would you do this, please, so that we might attract others to our church, Lord, and ultimately that we might give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.